I think we're doing okay, but I think we should talk to someone to make sure. Scott Kelly joins us from Regard Recovery to talk about a lifetime of work in the recovery industry. His first experience with therapy was after the loss of his father at the age of 18, where he caught the bug and went on to get a degree in psychology. He talks about motivational interviewing, co-opetition in treatment, and using evidence-based practices to manage a recovery center. Enjoy. Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Nider. I'm a husband, father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Kurt and I have the privilege and honor to talk with Scott Kelly today on the podcast. Um, Scott is a director of business development at Regard Recovery. Um, he, he specializes in relationship building and management, marketing, branding, contract acquisition, um, contract rates and negotiations, regulatory compliance, and collaboration and event planning. Um, Scott, thanks so much for being on with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, it it's apparent that you've um, been in the industry for a long time and have been able to try on a lot of different roles um, as you've gone through. And, and I can tell we talked a little pre-show about even getting into utilization reviews and, and everything that goes along with that. Maybe talk about a little bit, share with our listeners how you ended up in the industry and um, why you stayed. Sure. Well, um, I had my own, I guess, counseling story at the very beginning of my career where I lost my father when I was 18 and uh, probably about six months. And it was very sudden. It was a, a heart attack. So it was, you know, not something we had prepared for necessarily. Although when you have a death, are you ever really prepared? Uh, you know, no matter if it's been a long-term illness or sudden death, but I remember probably about six months post um, that event, my mom said, you know, I, I think we're doing okay, but we, I think we should talk to somebody just to make sure. And I remember going into treatment, uh, you know, outpatient counseling, and I remember the counselor just being able to help me focus my thoughts, to verbalize what was going on, and to come up with some strategies for for my grief. And um, I just remember being impressed at how much I enjoyed that process. And I thought this, this might be something along the lines of what I wanted to do. Um, got into college and I had also 
uh, worked at the Y for many years with kids. So I'd gotten into college, wanted to go into psychology, got into that, got my degree in psychology. And when I got out, then I started working at a treatment facility for children as a tech. And, um, and we, we talked a little bit about that, but just, you know, having an appreciation at the direct care level of what, what goes on. And then, um, Further in my career, as I moved through different positions, I actually moved into uh, substance abuse, co-occurring, but more on the adult side of things. And um, have my not while I don't have my own recovery story, I have uh, family members that have had to go into treatment that I've had to get into treatment, uh, friends as well, and then some that are still in active addiction. So uh, I can appreciate it from the family side of things quite well uh it, you know when i received that call i know exactly what that family member's going through mm. well, and it's um your story is a little bit different than some in the sense that you don't have that recovery story yourself although you can definitely relate to some of the challenges that come um you know come with that with family members do you ever feel like you get rejected by some of the people you work with because it's like yeah you don't get me you don't know what's going on here Oh, absolutely. There is, I think, an addiction culture that people kind of put a hierarchy on people uh, that maybe don't have their own story. Not from everybody, but I also try to tell folks as well, and I use this analogy, um, does your oncologist have had to have had cancer in order to treat you? Does your, uh, your doctor need to have experienced everything that you've experienced in order to be the expert? On medically on what to do for you so uh, you know I've, I, I've known a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two I think there's a commercial about that somewhere but uh, uh, I didn't mean to plagiarize whoever that was but I, I think again it's just having an appreciation for the different criteria diagnostics um, therapeutic interventions evidence-based practices that are tried and true that work and then just being able to identify from a family member's perspective on that desperation to get folks into treatment and then say, hey, we've got the know-how, we've got state-of-the-art facilities, we've got evidence-based practices that when you utilize those, uh, you can find recovery and you can get well. I love your explanation of um you know, how you explain that you don't have to necessarily go through what somebody else went through in order to be able to help them and get them into treatment and, and um, connect with them, which it's true. That's totally true. Because if everybody had a recovery story, I mean, that's a little un unrealistic to expect that as well. But then, you know, there's the idea that you really need that peer support. You need those people that you do feel like you can relate to and that you get your, your particular story. And so those are both important pieces um, do you, have you spent a lot of time doing interventions or have any experience with the intervention part of the industry? I jokingly say I'm not an interventionist, but I play one on TV. Um, no, I don't do that and I'm not trained in that per se. So if there's a formal intervention that needs to be done, we do contract that out or we would look to an expert if someone is looking for that. Um, I use a little bit of a technique, and I've trained my admission staff on this in, post, in previous positions, but uh, 
I use a little bit of motivational interviewing when I'm actually talking to a client that's talked in, called in and, and is looking for treatment. You know, again, just bringing it back to the original reason why they keep calling or why they've called because initially they're calling for that help, but then they start to talk themselves out of it and find reasons why, well, I can't do it this week because of A, B, or C. And again, just bringing it back to well, now let's talk about again why you you called. You know, you said you wanted to get your driver's license back. You said you, you know, your wife was leaving you if if you didn't get treatment, and that you wouldn't be able to see your kids again. So again, tell me what that looks like. Mm, I like it. And, and, yeah, and then I let them sit in that for a little bit, and then they start talking till finally you get to a point. And while it's not a therapy session. But finally, you get to a point where they've talked themselves back into treatment and they're saying, I'm coming in to, you know, today at four or whatever. So I think that, you know, it's definitely an effective tool, but, um, you know, much needed. Again, not an interventionist. And for those that do it and do it well, I mean, uh, kudos to them. And there, there is a time and a place for that, uh, especially if, if all efforts on our end, on the front end, just speaking to a client on the phone have failed. Then I'll suggest to the family, hey, let, it doesn't sound like, you know, your your loved one is ready. Um, might I suggest utilization of a an interventionist? So, very good, um, Scott. You've been, um, you know, in a lot of different places. You've been associated with quite a few different treatment facilities. Um, how many of those have you kind of been part of from the ground up of establishing and creating? Well, I opened one, and it was um, where we had purchased a property. We had gone through um, the renovations of that that property, picked out the finishes, you know, what we wanted it to look like functionally, uh, space-wise, so that it was more conducive to therapy and treatment uh, and different levels of care. Uh, to the writing of policies and procedure, although I had a lot of help there, um, you know, but, you know, if you know the administrative code of 65D30, you kind of write from that. Um, and then, you know, we've, I, I hired all the staff, put together an orientation, went through licensure, got it up and running, that type of thing. So I think that, um, and it's a lot of hard work, you know, I, I think, and, and as that should be, you know, you don't want anybody just hanging out a shingle. You want to make sure that people are going through their paces and that they really are doing it for the right reasons. Um, but it, it was it was a challenge for sure. But one, you know, it's still up and running to this day and, and providing great care for, for people. So, uh, you know, I'm very proud of the work that we did on that. And what would you say that um, are the, some of the most important concepts or, or pieces when you're building a, a, a program like that, a treatment program where you want to help, um, you know, a lot of people and, and specialize, maybe specialize. What are some of the key components when you're putting a, a program together like that? I think surrounding yourself with people that are experts in the business that can lend themselves to you, that could give you advice or provide some, some guidance. I uh, had a lot of help in that arena, uh, a lot of people that I leaned on for their advice. Um, and I think, you know, also hiring the right people, you know, having 
the right people in the right seats on the bus. We always, you know, joke about that. But I think that that cohesive um, team that you would have, uh, you you know, creating a culture that you want to be a place where, first of all, staff members want to work and they want to tell their friends, you know, hey, you, you got to get a job here. They're, they're doing some amazing things here. And then a culture where patients would say, you know, if you, know, if you want to recover, you need to go here. And I think that starts from the top down and how you set that tone. But, um, you know, team, team player, definitely um, never having the attitude of that's not my job. You know, even as the CEO, I, there was something in the hallway that needed to be cleaned or a toilet that needed to be plunged. There wasn't, you know, hey, let's go get so-and-so. It's, I got this. And I think that that, you know, when you have, I've always had more of a servant leadership approach. So, you know, when you come at it from that perspective, I think people are willing to come alongside you shoulder to shoulder and say, all right, we're, we're going to do this as a team. So I don't know, maybe if that answered your question or not, I hope. <laughs> um, great perspective of, of kind of building that culture and creating a space where people want to work and where people want to get, get better. Um, I'm also, I was curious, um, I, I see that Regard Recovery Center has three locations now, and it always, it always, it's a question that I think about often, but I've, I don't know that I've ever asked it, but how do you decide, you've got one in Florida, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia, how do you decide what state to put a facility in? Hmm. Well, and the ones in Pennsylvania and West Virginia, um, more are outpatient locations they do uh, more they're more like CTCs or community treatment centers for here in Florida and I think you look at regulatory compliance and and how difficult it's going to be uh, in each state to you know what is it that they're going to require is it going to be so many hoops that you you just can't do it um, and again like I said it should be hard it should be hard to open something but you know, it shouldn't be impossible. So I think, first of all, you look at, at need, population, where people might be willing to travel, uh, if they want to go out of state, that type of thing, which is probably why Florida and California are so popular, because uh, they're destination states, you know. So I think that there's a lot that goes into it. Then you look at um, population around the uh, whether or not you're targeting a higher end or middle income or, you know, insurance dependent versus you want to be all out of network or private pay. So there's a lot that goes into it depending on what you want your outcome to be or, or who your audience and, and uh, population that you serve will be. So that, that kind of helps guide you. But I guess there's a lot that goes into it. I just knew that I wanted to be in Florida because that's where I live. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good reason. Is it um, is it difficult to open up a new branch in a different state? Do you have to spend a lot of time there? Do you have other people that you know that you hire to make that happen? What does that look like? Well, I think through many many um, organizations, like you'll see some of your larger ones uh, that build through acquisition, like where they will acquire properties or facilities or programs that are already in existence. 
which is what Regard Recovery um, is pretty much in the business of doing. That's how they they expand. Uh, you know, starting from the ground up is a little more difficult, and usually those are more independent um, programs like ours was when I opened ours. But with Regard through acquisition, it's a little bit easier because somebody else has done the legwork in the beginning for you to open the facility. And then, you know, basically you're expanding and then improving processes as you see them when you go in and you do your kind of your SWOT analysis of, of each program um, and then decide, you know, kind of if you want to grow it or if that's something you want to streamline to just specific levels of care or uh, what you want it to look like, what population you want it, want to serve. So I think that the acquisition is probably the easiest way to go for sure. Um, building from the ground up, you just have to be more aware of what, what they're going to require in each county, in that state, you know. So there's, there's a lot of different uh, reasons why somebody might want to do it from the ground up versus acquisition, but most of the places I see um, that are growing are growing through acquisition. That makes sense. Um, I'm also curious um, about the different um, the different treat treatment levels. So it looks like you have a full continuum of treatment at your facilities. I mean, granted, outpatient for Pennsylvania and West Virginia, um, and some some inpatient. Uh, do you do medical detox at at uh, the Florida location? Yes. Yeah, so we have two Florida locations where we do medical detox. We have Journey Pure Emerald Coast in Panama City and then Destination Hope in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, so we're able to provide every level of care in those two locations. Journey Pure Emerald Coast is in network with many commercial insurances. Uh, most con we have contracts with most of the major uh, players. And then Destination Hope down in Fort Lauderdale is all out of network. So any PPO policies will work there. And so with, with, um, with you guys doing uh, both a medical detox where they're inpatient and then um, the MAT or the outpatient detox, I'm curious, what do you see? Like, I, I can't, I mean, I'm sure that not everybody is stable enough or appropriate for an outpatient detox, um, but it's a very different approach. And, and I know a lot of insurances really like it when you do outpatient detox. Um, I'm just curious about that industry and, and how you make those decisions of whether somebody goes inpatient or outpatient um, for that detox and how that affects their, you know, their treatment plan. Well, outpatient detox, you know, definitely util utilizes MAT in, in that sense of trying to bring someone down off of whatever they're on. Um, I can't tell you what goes into that decision. I can tell you that just in an inpatient or medical detox that where they're going inside, they're monitored, they have nursing around the clock. And the reason that they typically do that is, well, you've got somebody that might be coming off of, uh, you know, high levels of alcohol usage or benzodiazepines or things like that that could create some emergent event if they're not monitored. You know, you could have anything from seizures to aneurysms to heart attacks to strokes, those types of things. Um, so 
for me, I just feel like being in somewhere is uh, going to provide better monitoring overall care. I'm not saying that there's not an argument for outpatient medical detox. I will say that I'm sure insurance companies do like that because it's probably going to be less expensive. Um, you know, you're not going to have to to pay a higher per diem rate because you don't have as much supervision of, of the client or patient. So, um, you know, again, that wasn't an argument what for or against the other per se. I'm only familiar with inpatient detox because that's all I've ever represented. Um, now, as a clinician, um, I'm always interested in, I, you know, I look at the, the, MIT, the MAT or the, you know, medically assisted treatment or detoxing that goes on outpatient. And I've always, and I haven't been close enough to that to kind of see um, what that, you know, what that track is like for a person as opposed to that, you know, really close connection. And, but I guess it all comes down to how engaged they are still. And, you know, and for some it's not appropriate so they can step up to a higher level of care and, and that's still an option for them. Um, but I think it is a, a viable treatment. So I just thought I would ask and see what your perspective is on that. Talk a little sure. bit, um, talk a little bit about regard and, and some of the, um, philosophy or, you know, when, when, when you're, when you're talking to a family and they're looking at, you know, a loved one coming into treatment, what are some of the, you know, the, important aspects that you share with them? I think that's a great question because a lot of times families are under the mindset or in the mindset of, you know, we got to get Johnny in the treatment. He's the one that needs to be fixed and we need to get him, him help because once he gets help, everything's going to be fine. And I, I kind of chuckle. I said, okay, you know, um, but what the, the approach that we take, and I know specifically at Destination Hope, we have a fantastic family program where, you know, the family members actually come in and spend an entire four-day weekend, so they'll do Friday to Monday, where it's guided by a therapist, a family therapist, for the entire weekend. They will do extremely difficult, hard delving into, you know, uh, family systems type of work, they'll do um, psychodrama, they'll do different things, different evidence-based practices that will help the family, which I call the secondary patient, help them heal and learn to how to not trigger, how to not enable, how to not be a codependent, how to, you know, when little Johnny comes out of treatment, what are we going to do to help support and to help, you know, what's our part in this? Kind of like, much like the interventionists, we use the ARISE model. They go around the room and say, what's everybody going to do? Take a step towards, you know, this person's recovery. It's kind of the same premise. What are, what are we going to do as family members to, to help with, with Johnny when he comes home? Um, and so I think that that's, that's one approach that we, we try to emphasize is that, this is a family disease and we want to make sure that everybody's getting what they need. So no one's at risk for relapse or breakdown or anything like that. The second thing is too, as I said, you know what, I'm not the end all be all. Um, and our facilities are not the end all be all. 
Sometimes maybe a patient can't travel, they can't afford, or they don't have insurance to cover, or that's too far. Although I always ask them, you know, far from what? Your dealers, your enablers, your codependents, you know? Um, you know, what I try to make sure that they understand is that you're going to do treatment in four walls somewhere. So let's make sure it's the best clinical fit for you, even if that's outside of my family of facilities. We want to make sure that you're going to get the help that you need. We often joke in the industry that the phone weighs 500 pounds when somebody's actually looking for treatment. You want to make sure that you reward them with treatment. So we will not let that person fall. We try to get them to somewhere that is going to meet their needs. And that's why we, you know, in the business development role, we develop so many networking relationships because of that very thing. You know, we have to have some a provider that maybe does what we do, but in another location. Um, because if, you know, Susie doesn't want to leave Jacksonville, well, we need a place in Jacksonville that Susie can go. Um, and we rely on our, our partners uh, out. You know, I, I, I say this, I don't really think there's anything such as competition in this because I said, you know, yes, while we all have our roles and we have, we do need to make our numbers uh, because we all have to pay our, the bills and our clinicals. You know, it's, it's, I believe it's what we call co-competition, like <laughs> cooperative competition because again you know maybe this facility does something that I can't do this facility takes a an insurance that I can't take so you have to know all of that so so again you know emphasizing the difference that we uh, treat folks clinically the whole family as well as we're gonna make sure that you get help somewhere um, you know that's that's kind of our commitment to that that person that's on the other end of the phone and, and what an incredibly important piece to address is that systemic, that family dynamic. And we've talked about that on the show before of, you know, if, if you just treat the client, you haven't changed anything. They're going to go back into an unhealthy environment. They're going to go back somewhere and, and they're going to be expected to behave in the same way that they did when they left. And so, you know, there's triggers all over the place if you don't have that family buy-in. Um, so I love that you guys address that piece. I'm, uh, I know that you talked about kind of that, and this is a twofold question, that um, network of people in recovery, right? That goes for the person that's in recovery, you know, that network of people that they can connect with, their peers, um, you know, after treatment to where they can stay connected and in recovery and, and could keep doing their program. Um, but you also have this network of facilities and other business development people that you work with um, to, like you said, to try and get people placed in the proper, in the, the right place, um, in the place that's going to work the best for them, which is, um, you know, which is so important because everybody brings a little bit different um, specialty to to the industry. Are, are those networks um, completely separate? You know, that network of helping clients get into where they need to get and that network of, 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 uh, of clients where they're in recovery and they're trying to, you know, stay connected to their peers. Well, so what I'll say is a little bit twofold. Um, you have folks, again, that are working in the industry that are re in recovery. So, you know, some of my peers are actually in recovery and 
uh, are, are part of home groups or other groups that can help clients stay connected. We have a strong alumni program at all of our facilities. So we have an actual alumni coordinator who um, they fall up under, some, they kind of have a dotted line to me because many times if someone does relapse, they're in, connect, they're, they're in contact with them. They're constantly reaching out and staying in, in contact with them and connected so that if something happens, they can either get them back in very quickly or help to find another appropriate placement for them. So that's why we communicate constantly on the alumni side of things. Now in the network of facilities or other business development people like counterparts of mine at other facilities, I stay in touch with quite often because again, I say, you know, this person just called me. Um, this is what they're struggling with. This is what they're looking for. This is the insurance they have. And gosh, I just don't have a bed right now. Can you help? And they're like, absolutely. Let me, let me get, you know, get on that for you right now. Or, you know, it's, gosh, I, I, I just, this is what he's looking for. It's the niche type of thing. Maybe it's a wilderness program. Well, I don't really have a wilderness program, but I'm connected with people who do. So that's his approach that this particular client wants. Let's, let's let him try that, you know, and, and we'll, we'll get him there. Um, you know, again, I think that just, we have a great and wonderful portfolio that I have to offer for clients and I can meet just about any one of their needs because we can do everything from detox all the way down to sober living. At Destination Hope, we even have primary mental health that folks can come into there, every level of care, including down to transitional housing. So, um, you know, so it's almost like sober living, but for mental health. So, like, I can just about help everybody. But again, for those folks that I can't, that's why it's so important to stay in constant contact and then network with other treatment facilities. I know a lot, there used to be that thought process of, you know, oh, you know, we've got to play our cards close to the best. You can't share anything and you can't, you, you can't work together and you can't tour each other's facilities. And, you know, you might steal this idea. I think that was a bunch of hogwash. I mean, I think that, you know, and, and we've started to see a swing towards what I'm, I'm referring to now is that I think people are a lot more open to working together because of that very thing. It's about the client. And I believe that when you help folks, that's just going to come back to you. People remember that. So that's that's our biggest push. But I, I hope that answered, you know, about the alumni and the network of providers that maybe distinguished it a little bit. And so um, you've, you've done a lot of roles. You've played a lot of roles, CEO to, you know, a tech and, you know, with youth and, and now as business development. Um, Tell me, tell me why you pick business development as opposed to maybe being a CEO that maybe seems like it's higher on the ladder and, and maybe what's in the future for you. Well, and I'm not opposed to being a CEO again. Uh, there, there's different aspects of the, each of those jobs that fit my personality. I love kind of the operations side of things and being able to see people in the facility and watch them progress you know, from the first day that they come into detox to like say day 14 and you're like, I know you don't remember me in the first day you got here, but we had a full conversation and you look incredible, you know, to see that transformation, but operations and, and kind of that um, regulatory stuff interests me as well. But 
I'm also a talker and I love, <laughs> I, I'm a people person. So I love being able to be out in the community and talk to other providers or other, um, you know, people in business development missions. Because again, you get that um, just to rub elbows with people that are treating the clients on the front lines and, and to see how you can partner together. And when outpatient does becomes not enough, you know, saying, hey, I can partner with you to get this client detoxed for you, get them through residential and get them back to your care. Um, you know, and we talked about the intrinsic value of being able to do that. Now, we don't always get a call on the back end that says, hey, thanks for what you did. But, you know, there's a few of those calls that I can I can recollect where they would get on the phone with me and say, Scott, you saved my life. Like the fact that you got me the treatment, it saved my life. So what I love being able to do is connect families and, and patients with, with treatment, get them in, and maybe that's the beginning of the start of the rest of that person's life in recovery. Um, and, and that's the intrinsic value that I have. Um, I don't know that I can stay in a clinical role necessarily treating somebody one-on-one -on -one, uh, because that can get heavy too. Like you have to, in any role in this industry, I think it's always important, you know, to have a great program of self-care because I think you got to combat that burnout, you know, uh, that compassion burnout as well. But, but I think out of all of them, out of all the roles I've held, I think business development's been my favorite. Again, just because I get to travel, everything's new. You're not stuck in an office. You, you get to, uh, you know, like I said, just get out, have coffee, have lunch. And, and it's not just the social aspect of it. I mean, you really are meeting for a purpose and you really want to develop those relationships so that, because I, we've said in this industry before, clinicians or people don't send to facilities, they send to people. You know, if you and I have a relationship and you trust me and say, Scott, I don't care where you are. I just know you're going to take care of my clients. I'm going to send this client to you. So, uh, that, yeah, so business development, I think, overall, my favorite role. So you, you see yourself probably staying in that role. You don't have anything in the future, any any plans to change that. You, you, uh, you really fit in there and love that. I do. I mean, I just... I just recently moved into, with regard, into the director of business development role. I like managing teams. I also like, like I said, being able to meet with folks. I'm not opposed to it, uh, you know, to moving into another role if I'm asked. But, you know, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. I'm not necessarily looking. But, um, but you know, again, if, it, if, if something's right and you feel like you can contribute and make it better, um, and you're needed, then certainly I would consider it. But I, I've, I think I'm in the right seat right now. So. You talked a little bit about self-care and, you know, burnout and self-care, which has been a hot topic in, in our industry with COVID and, and all of the, you know, isolating and virtual world that we've lived in here for the last year and a half or two years, coming on two years. Um, what did self-care look like for you during that? And how did that affect you? Because I hear you talk about the social aspect and it seemed like there was a lot of, you know, withdrawal from that social aspect. And I'm curious what self-care looked like for you and how did that, you know, how did COVID affect you specifically? Well, I think that, um, 
for one thing, you had to be very strategic with your Zoom calls. I, and, and I think we were very efficient being able to do things a, across a visual spectrum here, like either Zoom or, or um, you know, Teams or whatever type of interactive video that you used. That was very wonderful because it gave us at least a connection that we otherwise would not have had if we just had to stay shut down and everybody locked up forever. I think that that would have been, you know, I think everybody would have gone stir crazy uh, in that regard. I think that I had to be very cognizant of making sure that I got up and moved around, that I didn't stay seated and, and in front of my desk, just like you would if you were in an office anyway. I would go outside for probably in between calls uh, barefoot in the grass just for some kind of grounding, uh, you know, just to, to be there and getting some natural vitamin D on my, my skin. Um, I, I would swim. I played uh, at the time, you know, once everything started to open back up, played volleyball a lot more. Uh, that's something I do in the evenings on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then, uh, you know, just like spending some time in the pool and just making sure and going to the gym too. Like I, I, I believed in focusing on not just putting something here, but also making myself healthy, um, you know, by eating right, taking vitamins and, and making sure that I was working out in the gym and, and, and things like that. So it was kind of a multi-pronged approach, but it was more for stress relief as well as a way to just, um, you know, get some aggression out or whatever you want to say it, it just kept me um it kept me sane at the time i guess i should say <laughs> well and you're not the only one you know that's had to deal with that every all of us have and and it seems so simple right i'm just gonna walk away for a minute and you know go walk in the grass with my bare feet or go stand in the sun for a minute i think that that self-care can be really simple but even, even as simple as it is, sometimes we forget to do that. So I love that you talk about the simplicity of that, but that you have to, you have to do it, right? You have to take that time and, and take care of yourself because it makes 10 minutes walking away and, and turning it off for a second is huge. And yet, how often do we say, yeah, that'll wait, you know, and, and not take care of ourselves. So I love that you talk about that. Um, Scott, it's been... Uh, super, super fun to talk with you today and to learn a little bit more about all of these roles that you've played and, and kind of what's important to you, um, as, as well as with Regard Recovery and what they offer to clients and the continuum of care that they offer. Um, maybe in parting, um, leave with us a little bit of, of your contact information. I'm sure that people are, may want to reach out and connect with you and your programs. Um, leave some contact information and, and any parting words that you may have. Absolutely. So anybody can reach me at any time. My cell phone's always on me um, at 813-300-7401. Um, you know, like I said, you can text or call. That's my professional cell. Um, you know, what I will say is that find find what you like to do in life and just do that. I mean, it, it is so short as we're seeing these days, um, find, find what you like to do because then, then it won't seem like work, you know? Um, and I think the passion that I have for getting folks help, you know, I knew I was going to be in a helping profession 
my parents were both teachers. And I didn't want to do that, but I knew that I was going to be in the helping profession. So, so this feel fills that need, but, um, do what you love. And by all means, certainly if anybody needs help, please reach out. Like I would hate to think that somebody thought, well, I don't want to be judged or I don't want this to, to, to happen or that negative consequence and to have you suffer or to have you have some other worse event happen just because you feel like somebody wasn't on the other end of the phone. I'm on the other end of the phone. Call me. I could not agree more. Um, I could not agree more in the idea that, you know, sometimes people suffer in pain and I mean, really significant pain and, you know, is all they want to do is end it when in reality, if they could just, you know, make that phone call or reach out to somebody and get that help, you know, that's a temporary situation, even though it feels like, you know, like you want to die. So I agree with you, um, you know, in any time that we can, you know, help people understand that there is help out there and there is love out there and there are people out there that really can help and want to help. So I appreciate that message too, Scott. It's been fantastic having you on today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Shelly. Anytime I'd love to come back and um, spread the word. So 